Welcome to Bible Q&A, a monthly discussion with Luther Seminary faculty about everything you wanted to know about the Bible, but we're afraid to ask. I'm Eric Barreto. I'm Catherine Schifferdecker. And today we're joined by Dick Nicey, who teaches Old Testament here at Luther Seminary. Thanks for joining us, Dick. You're welcome. So, uh, Dick, we uh, asked you to talk about this, this question about uh, why is God so violent, or what do we do with a God uh, of the Old Testament who advocates violence? So... Uh, the reason this question comes up is it, it seems like um, more and more people um, talk about the so-called God of the Old Testament as a God of wrath, a God of judgment, um, as as if God of the Old Testament is different from the God we know in Jesus Christ. So the question for, for us today uh, is, of course, a big one, um, but we're going to try to at least attempt to address it. Uh, what do we do with these depictions of God, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, um, when God advocates war, or when God is even called a warrior in the Old Testament? Well, I think there are a number of things. The first one that comes to mind is trying to figure out where you are positioned in the passage you're reading or the the story that you're going through, maybe even the legislation that you're reading in the case of some parts of the uh, Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy. Are you being addressed as one who has power or as one who doesn't have power. If you're in the position of power, then you might be in the role of Pharaoh, the one who is actually uh, has violence done to him. Mm-hmm. If you're in the role of the slaves, uh, then the violence operates very differently. It creates your, your freedom. So you take something like Exodus 15 and the celebration of God as a warrior and all the other uh, things that are sung about in that song, Uh, it is really slaves singing that. It's a very different kind of thing to read that as somebody who's part of a a powerful nation, and now you sing that about yourself. You're really not positioned that way by the the reading of the biblical passage. So that's one thing. Another would be to say, um, to think about um, what else you have to read besides the story that's right in front of you. So if you're reading Joshua chapter 6 in the walls of Jericho, uh, they come falling down, but the end of that story is in 2 Kings 25. A lot, of mo- lot more chapters in 2 Kings 25 is the walls of Jerusalem coming down. You don't get Joshua and Jericho without 2 Kings and Nebuchadnezzar outside of the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, the two come together canonically, so you're uh, biblically. So you're always thinking about where are you positioned in relationship to the characters in the story, and that has a different impact. That's quite different than reading it simply for rules and guidelines for conduct today. That's way too flat. That's reading it like a guidebook instead of a narrative or a storyline into which you are plugged by the grace of God. So that, that's really helpful. So it depends where you're positioned as far as reading the story or who you identify with. So if you're reading God as a warrior on my side and you're the, uh, you're the powerful person or you're the powerful nation, that can be dangerous uh, because then we're claiming God on our side uh, and we're going to possibly be the oppressors. But if a, a, a people or a person who is really oppressed, who is dealing with injustice, is reading God as a warrior, um, and is identifying with the, the Israelite slaves, for instance, in the, in the example you mentioned in Exodus 15, 
then it's a word of hope, right? That, right, that right. It seems so, to matter not just what the Bible says, but to whom it is speaking in a particular moment. So like you said, do you find yourself in Pharaoh's shoes or in the shoes of a bunch of uh, uh, Israelites who are enslaved by Egypt? It makes a difference, right? Right. You take something like you, like Jeremiah. He's got his two uh, speeches at the temple in chapter 7 and chapter 26. Those bo- the crowd reacts as if their prerogative has been assaulted by saying, you're going to uh, be defeated, and this temple will become like the house of Shiloh, another temple that was uh, destroyed in the time of Samuel or just in the preface to the Samuel story. So that, that uh, use of God acting against the community uh, assaults their sense of privilege, just the reverse of what had happened when you're reading Exodus 15 mm. as a slave. Mm-hmm. And in, uh, in the section where Jeremiah deals in, in chapters 21 and following with the leaders, uh, actually the quotation of God there, or quote, a statement that the prophet makes in behalf of God is, I, I myself will fight against you with an outstretched arm. The very language that was used for the conquest is the language that's used for being brought into exile mm-hmm. and, and including the metaphor of the powerful hand or arm of God now operating against the community instead of in behalf of the community. Well, they're in a fundamentally different place in about 600 B.C. than they are as slaves well before the time of David. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like we have these, uh, these whole set of texts, these whole, all these passages, uh, some of which, uh, and, and the witness is complicated. Uh, to say that the God of the Old Testament is violent is maybe not entirely accurate. It's, it's more complicated than that. Let's turn to the, the New Testament as well. Uh, is God's character consistent between the Old Testament and the New Testament when it comes to violence and war, or are there some changes along the way? Well, we don't get the same kind of storylines of nations battling in the immediate um, sense. Uh, right. There's no equivalent to... Uh, large sections of Jeremiah or Second Kings 25 in the Gospels mm-hmm. in a straightforward narrative, for instance. Right. Mm-hmm. And the epistles are letters written. So it's not, again, it's not dealing with this. It's a much more shrunken timeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't get, and Israel is really not a nation at that point. It's a province in another empire. So it doesn't even have the means to mm-hmm. talk mm-hmm. about military might the same way. But I think a couple of things that show continuity, the Magnificat, Mary's song, uh, the mighty shall be brought low and the lowly exalted. That makes a big difference where you're reading. If you're reading as a mighty person, that's a threat. Mm -hmm. If you're reading as the lowly, that's a deep promise, that's deep source of hope Mm -hmm. in God's action uh, at that point. And if justice is going to be something more than just a notion that it's actually embodied, that it is an event that occurs for the oppressed, for the widow and the orphan, to pick up Old Testament phrases, if that is an event, then in some fashion, it has to involve opposition, some defeat. Not everything's a zero-sum thing, but a zero-sum situation. But there are places you can't just simply say to the poor, well, now do not steal, and then, oh, wait, 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 wait. If God is a God of justice, then what does that mean if it is not embodied in the restraint of the oppressor? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And 
on a national level, that's going to look like war and involve war. On a smaller level, it might be the judicial system, and you're arrested and put in prison mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. any number of things. Another facet of that is to look at how in uh, Paul's uh, Apostle Paul's speaking, he talks about being under the wrath of God, particularly in Romans, right. something like the whole world is under the judgment of God. What does that mean other than all of our experiences of the alienation of God from God, alienation from each other, and the strife in the world? Now, if we want God uninvolved, then, then we're on our own. If we say God's involved in our lives, then you hit all the ambiguity that occurs in wars between nations, and it's never mm-hmm. particularly clean-cut to say who's on God's side. But it's quite a different thing to say God is absolutely not involved in that. So if God is a God of justice, God must act. Yeah. Is that what I and mean? if so, God yeah. acts, then yeah. that means involvement. And yeah. what is that going to look like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We don't get to be the uh, guardians of that. Right. We're the ones who have to decide whether it's a moment to repent and refrain from what we're doing or whether it's time to have hope. Yeah. And be encouraged. Yeah, I wonder sometimes if Christians have a hard time thinking about God's love, God being both loving and just at the same time, that we tend to separate those two ideas out. When I think for a lot of the Bible, those are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. If God loves us, then God must be a God of justice and a God of action, that God can't abide by it when um, Israel is being enslaved by the Egyptians, and God can't abide anywhere where there is injustice and unfairness. And God has to act. And that one of the ways that Scripture can talk about this then is by using this imagery of violent language. Um, what are the limits of that language? Where, where can we get in trouble with this language, you think? I think we get in trouble the minute we make ourselves the enforcers of God's justice. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very slippery slope. Uh, it's hard to tell when I'm working out of my self-interest and when I'm actually deeply working only for the in- interest of the oppressed. Mm-hmm. That immediately uh, makes any quick appropriation of the violent language uh, very problematic. And it's as likely, for instance, uh, in lament psalms, where there's a lot of appeal to God to act against the enemy, and that mm-hmm. many metaphors, they may not be military, but they're certainly uh, violent. Uh, my question, where I live, in the socioeconomic place I live and so on, Who's praying that prayer against me? Mm-hmm. Rather than that, I am privileged to say that against somebody I think is my enemy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This kind of faking it as the oppressed is a is a thing I have to avoid when I read those. And probably they're less a prayer of mine than they are. How is this prayer being prayed against me? Yeah. How am I working like the enemies of the psalmist? That kind of thing. I think. Uh, uh, that sort of reading approach or uh, uh, understanding of one's own capacity to do violence, to oppress, is fundamental to guarding mm-hmm. and limiting the destructive uh, potential for misappropriating those yeah. texts. Is so, that, do you think that influences how Christians should think about warfare today? So if if we have all these images of a violent God, of a God who will engage in warfare for the sake of justice— or at least there's language that that's how God is acting. Um, how do we think about 
human wars. Does that, does that help us? Does it hinder us? Is there much instruction there for us? Well, certainly not uh, underwriting our projects. I don't see how uh, one can easily or well, you can you can try it, but I don't think that the Bible's hope in the God as a God of justice, uh, I don't think that would permit us to facilely or easily put a belt buckle on that says God is with us and blessing our whole operation. Right. That's deeply problematic to do that that straightforward. So attendant on any uh, work in behalf of justice that might take the form of military action would be constantly the question of what way is this self-serving and then, if I see it as self-serving, the whole biblical record would be that God will uh, operate against that self-serving. Mm-hmm. So that that uh, that I always need to attend to how God might be operating against my actions rather than underwriting them mm-hmm. only. That that discernment of uh, and I think it is a is that's the discernment between is this a moment of love or is this a moment of justice right mm-hmm. and that that the tension between those two is inescapable all the time once one feels that tension there's a big restraint on appropriating these to underwrite my projects right the second might be a second area might be to see uh, the crucifixion itself as just a fundamental place for Christians. There the violence is actually done to God on the cross. There's the whole community, all four Gospels say, give us Barabbas. That's the world of violence, the world of Barabbas. We know that world. (laughs) But it's not just that. We also say, crucify him. Mm. All four Gospels, the human community says, crucify him. So our capacity for violence is not just blessed by God, but God actually receives it mm. on God's self. Mm. Our, our violence is dissipated in God's uh, submission to it. Mm. And I think the, the focus on the core redemptive act in the Christian faith uh, is also a restraint. Um, that's, uh, that's a great thing to, to point to the crucifixion. So there, there's both continuity and discontinuity, as we were talking about earlier, between Old Testament and New Testament. I think uh, uh, I, the biggest discontinuity is yeah. though that God let this occur to God's self. Exactly. Right. And to yeah. the extent the violence is also the judgment of God, mm-hmm. God visited, visits it on God's own self. Yeah, yeah. So the, the uh, I, I imagine most of our listeners, and certainly we ourselves here living in 21st century America, um, we... We're uncomfortable with this, or many of our listeners, many people we've talked to are uncomfortable with this, but it seems uh, if we were to just throw it out, this language of God as warrior, this language of God as fighting on behalf of the oppressed, then we do a disservice to those who uh, are who we oppress, <laughs> those who in our society who are forgotten and oppressed and marginalized, that, uh, that this is a word of hope. To those people, it may be a word of judgment to us. Um, yeah, our discomfort with it uh, is an occasion for us to ask uh, about uh, whether or not this this uh, language in the Bible is being uh, is there in behalf of somebody other than ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And if we're not the oppressed, and we're we're privileged, and we feel discomfort with this language, it's a good sign to pay attention. 
to the oppressed again. Mm-hmm. So uh, I once remember uh, doing a Bible class in a church on uh, on Joshua and the how could God do this to the Canaanites? How could God? And I ask, I, I finally just ask, are you afraid you're the next Canaanite? Mm. And a person said, yes. Mm. And so I think real, ever since that, I've thought about, is the question a matter of my sitting like in a prosecuting attorney or in the jury's box putting God on trial, or is it really that this makes me spiritually face my own sin, which must be brought to an end so that I might actually be the Canaanite? I'm the sinner. I'm the one who's 400 years to go back to Genesis 15. 400 years of violence has to be played out. And it's finally played out in the story in Joshua. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Dick, for joining us uh, on this really great discussion. I think it, it'll be really valuable to our listeners, to our readers. Uh, thanks again for being here. Oh, it's been fun. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Bible Q&A. You can find more information at enterthebible.org. Join us again. Thank you.